tonight we're in Romans chapter 7. So open your Bible to Romans chapter 7. And, and right out the front as you're turning there, um, we'll just go ahead and acknowledge that Romans chapter 7 is one of the most difficult chapters to interpret in the entire Bible. There's a, there's a list. If you made a list of the top three most difficult passages in the Bible and you polled all the great theologians um, and biblical scholars throughout history and you asked them, what are the three most difficult passages in the Bible? I guarantee you all of them would have Romans chapter 7 in their top three. Um, and so give me some grace, guys. This is a difficult passage, and I'll explain some of the reasons for that. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to break it in part, and we're going to look at it in, in a few different sections and walk through it together. But I do say it is a difficult passage. Uh, theologians, for example, um, the great St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, um, struggled to understand in, in this passage and actually published two different views at one point in his writing career, if you call it that, he, he had one view and then later in his life he changed it. There's actually several theologians who have done that, who have published two different views on this passage as they labored and worked through it. Imagine that, writing a book and, and putting forward one view and then later in life being like, oh, I think I messed that up. Let's try this again. And uh, as you grow in your knowledge of the word and you, you seek to understand it, there are going to be times in your life when you do that. But what's important for us to understand is that it isn't our interpretation that is authoritative. It's the word of God that is authoritative. And so we submit to that word of God. And when we realize that, hey, we've been wrong, it's important for us to confess that and to get in line with the word of God, no matter what that is. And so we can actually be encouraged to see that in church history and see that in great theologians who say, you know what, I was wrong on this. And here are the reasons why I think I was wrong. And here is what I think the Bible's saying. And we want to uphold the truth of God's word, no matter how difficult it is. Now, first, setting all this up, trying to get you guys to feel sorry for me, right? So I don't mess this up. That's not at all. But I do think that the main point of Romans chapter 7 is pretty clear. But the, the difficulty is in how all the details shake out, okay? So I hope the main point will be an encouragement to you tonight. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we deal with this difficult passage. So God, we come tonight, we do seek your help, we seek your mercy. Um, you are the author of this word. You are the author of this scripture. And Lord, we, we seek your help in interpreting it and applying it rightly to our lives. I confess that this task is uh, bigger than me, um, but Lord, I seek to be faithful in handling your word rightly and with respect and reverence. And God, we pray uh, that you make much of Christ through it all. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the title of the sermon tonight is The War Within. The War Within. We'll look at it in three main chunks. The first six verses I've given the, the title, Freed to Marry a New Man. Freed to Marry a New Man. Verses 7 and 13, 7 through 13, it's entitled, The Goodness of the Law and the Deadness of the Flesh. The Goodness of the Law and the Deadness of the Flesh. And then finally, in verses 14 through 25, 
We'll talk more about that, particularly hone in on that war within you, the war within you. So uh, we will read the first six verses um, together as we look at this first point. This is God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So in this uh, passage, we, we get this illustration of marriage. And Paul is likening our relationship um, to the law, our relationship to Christ, in a similar way as a relationship between husband and wife. Now, before jumping straight into this illustration and just sort of trying to like dive in to the pool right at this point, we need to back up and get kind of downstream because I think important and an important thing that we need to do to, in order to rightly interpret this passage is we need to understand that this chapter seven is not an island. Chapter seven is connected to five and six and eight and nine. It is a, uh, a flow of thought. And by the way, I don't think I've mentioned this since we've been meeting on Sunday nights, but um, the original writings of the scripture that we have did not have chapters. Um, the chapter divisions in the Bible aren't divinely inspired. Um, these were added much later in history um, in order to just make it helpful. Imagine trying to find a Bible verse if there were no chapters and verses. It would be difficult to do. Um, that's why you don't see any of the apostles quoting the scripture saying, in Isaiah 23, 32, he says, they just say, Isaiah says, and hopefully you're familiar enough to go, well, it was somewhere on this section of the scroll. <laughs> um, but throughout church history, uh, scribes and, and teachers found it helpful to add the verses and numbers, uh, verses and chapters in there to help us. And sometimes we can get tripped up by that because we think of the chapters as being like distinct units that can stand up on their own. Um, and that's not the way it's designed to be. It, it, we're jumping into the middle of an argument, into the middle of uh, Paul trying to persuade the Christians in Rome of the gospel of Jesus. And so we're not just jumping in um, to a passage on an island. And that's important because if we're going to understand this marriage relationship that he's talking about here, uh, we got to go back to at least chapter five and allow the theology and the imagery that he establishes there in those earlier chapters to inform our interpretation in the later chapters. Isn't that how you would want to be interpreted? 
Like if you were teaching something or explaining something to someone and you spent all this time early on in your speech setting the groundwork and then but someone just completely ignored that and then just jumped in at the end of your speech and just imported their own meaning and their own understanding into what you were trying to say. You wouldn't like that. So we don't want to treat the Bible that way either. So if we go back to Romans chapter 5, we go back to this theology of federal headship. This idea that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, right? That, that you have these two federal heads. Adam as the head of the covenant of works and all of us have fallen in him and inherit a sinful nature and condemned uh, due to our relationship to our federal head, Adam. And then Jesus comes as a second Adam, a second man, uh, the head of the covenant of grace. And then just as many were condemned to death in Adam, many are saved and made righteous in Christ. We have this federal relationship, the idea that we're bound to our covenant head. Um, this is relevant here in chapter 7, because of that same covenant theology. Because there's a, a similar federal relationship between husband and wife. There's a federal headship between husband and wife in which the husband is the head of the, the covenant family. The husband is the representative of the family before God. And the wife is bound to this husband by covenant. So, it's a similar category. And so we need to be thinking in those categories of Romans chapter five as we get to seven. But also six is important because in chapter six, we have this idea of being united to Christ, that there's union with Christ in his death and resurrection, that when he died, you died. When he's raised, we have the promise that we are raised and we even now have been raised to spiritual life by virtue of our union with Christ. But we also, in chapter 6, see this idea of being freed from slavery, that we're enslaved to sin, and in Christ you're set free to then become a slave of righteousness, right? To obey Jesus rather than to obey sin. So let's, let's track with Paul's logic here. Chapter 5, there's a federal relationship, okay, between... Um, God and his covenant people. There's a head of that covenant. It's either Adam or Christ. We were all in Adam, and then we become in Christ by virtue of faith in him, believing in him in the new covenant. And when you're in Christ, you have died to sin. Sin no longer has authority over you. You're freed from bondage to sin, and you're made able to obey and to be a slave of righteousness, okay? And so now we continue that same logic as Paul is working through this gospel in chapter seven. And he begins with this illustration of that marriage bond, that covenantal relationship between husband and wife. And he sets up this, uh, this comparison. And you basically have three characters in this comparison. You have the wife, you have the first husband who dies, and then you have the second husband in Paul's illustration. He says, in the law, a woman is only bound to her husband while he lives. That's why when we get married, we say, till to death do us part. So 
you're married, but the day that one of you dies, that marriage is over. That covenant is over. You've been faithful unto death, and so you're not bound to that person anymore. You're freed to then marry another. Okay? You're not bound to that law of marriage because of the death of the first husband. And Paul says the Christian is like this. He says that so if we take those categories of wife, first husband, second husband, we have the Christian is the wife. The Christian is the bride. The first husband, and this is where the passage gets difficult, <laughs> one of the places, who's the first husband? Some people would say the law is the first husband, that you're bound to the law. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the first husband, going back to Romans chapter 5, would be Adam. Remember, you're, you're in Adam. And I think in Adam, sin came into the world, right? Go back to Romans chapter 5. The death came into the world through one man, and, or sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so I think in, in the sort of illustration here, we have the Christian as the wife, Adam slash sin as the first husband. And the question is then, who's the second husband? The second husband would be Christ. Um, verse 4. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now you might say, well, it says right there, Clint, you have died to the law. Shouldn't you put the law as the first husband. I don't think that's the case, okay? So if you go back to the, the sort of example that he gives in, earlier on in chapter 7, verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So the law is what bound her to her husband. So she was bound to her husband by the law. So she's not released from the law, but she's released from her husband as the law binds her to her husband. Does that make sense? And so I think if we push that into the, um, the like comparison into the Christian life, that we're not necessarily freed from the law, but you're freed from the law binding you to sin and death, the old Adam. And we, we've talked about that, how the law is like that mirror that shows you your sin. We'll talk about that some more here. So you're freed from the law binding you to sin and death because Jesus died to that. And you have died. And the old you, the old Adam, has died to sin. Chapter 6. Okay, you see how that's connected and it's in line with the flow of the passage. I, I hope you, you're seeing that. And so if we take this illustration that he begins the chapter with of the marriage bond and the first husband dying so that you can then have a new relationship to a new man, a new husband. And we look at verse six. It says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, we die to that which held us captive. Chapter six, what held us captive? Sin. So we have died to sin 
in order that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what that means is in this new covenant, this new marriage, if you will, that we call the new covenant, there's a new relationship to the law. There's a new relationship to the law of the marriage. It's a new way, a new way. So in the old Adam, according, you're obeying the law according to the written code, okay? But in the new way, it is through the Spirit. So he's in verse six, setting up these categories of ways in which we serve, the ways in which we serve, I would argue God, that we serve, um, yeah, that we serve God under the law. One way is the way of the Spirit, and the other way is in the way of the written code. And so what I think he's getting at this is, in our flesh, in that first marriage, under Adam, the only way that we can, our relationship rather to the law of God is by the written code. It's black and white on the page and it's our strength and willpower to do what it says. And we all know that that fails because why? We're in bondage to sin. We're slave to sin. We don't have the spiritual freedom to do that. But in this new way, this new covenant, this new relationship, the Spirit of God is now active at, and at work with you, making you able um, to obey and to serve this law. So you have a new relationship to that law. But if we remember back, the failures that we have trying to um, obey the law to serve God in the old Adam, we fall short. Look at verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is very important, listen to this. While we are living in what? In the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And this is getting us ready to move into the next section here, but I'm wanting you to see the, the categories that are being established here. What we have in verse five is this picture of living in the flesh and your sinful passions. those things are aroused by the law to produce the fruit of death. And so as Paul keeps moving through that, you might hear that and you go, wait a second. Does that mean that the law is sin? So if the law led to us bearing fruit for death, does that mean that the law is sin? Is the law sinful? And that's the objection, the question that Paul is anticipating in verse seven in the next section is really trying to answer that objection. If, if I have been aroused by the law to produce fruit for death, does that mean that the, the law itself 
is, is sinful. And he, and he argues against this, saying essentially that the law is good. The problem is with us and the deadness of our flesh. So let's read verses 7 through 13. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But the sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, so is the law sin? Is the law sinful? If it's not sinful, then what is it? It's kind of what Paul is, is addressing here. And first he would say, then no, it is not sinful by no means. Don't come to that conclusion. If that's the conclusion that you walk away from Romans chapter 7 saying that the law of God is bad, then you've misunderstood him. He says, by no means. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Covet. So what does the law do if it isn't sin? It reveals sin. It, it makes us able to see the sin that is present in us. It makes us see the sin that is uh, present in us. It, it's kind of, I heard an illustration on this topic of uh, a guy was saying, you know, he had this vanity, a bathroom vanity. Then you've seen him with all the lights across the top. And over the years, those bulbs had blown out. He didn't have any spares. And so there was only like a couple bulbs in the whole row of like five or six bulbs that were actually working. And so finally, one day he changes all the bulbs and now he's got all this brightness of light shining in his bathroom. And then he realizes how dirty his sink is. So the question is, did the lights make the sink dirty? Right? Correlation does not equal causation. The light didn't make the sink dirty, but what the light did was shine light on the sink so that you could see that it was actually dirty all along. And so he's saying, as the law is kind of like this, I wouldn't even known what coveting was until the law told me not to covet. And then all of a sudden I want to covet. I see this dirtiness and the sinfulness in me. And then he talks about the sort of craftiness of our fallen sinful nature in using this to produce more sin. You know, this is especially where the coveting illustration goes. He's saying, I might not have ever struggled with coveting until God told me not to. And so what he's saying is, it's not the commandment not to covet that is sinful, but our sinful nature, those sinful passions are crafty and, and use that commandment to produce new transgression in us. 
It's like you learned a new way to sin. It's like when a kid first, wor- first learns a dirty word, right? They learned a new way to transgress that was already there. That heart of corruption and desire to do evil is already there. They just learned a new way to do it. He's saying that is the way our sinful nature is. That our sinful nature can use and does often use the commandment of God to produce even more transgression. And we've seen this in in the do not touch sign, you know, that we've all touched. It's like, what's what's it going to do? Touch it. I want to touch it all. This is a free country. I can touch it. (laughs) You didn't want to touch the thing until the sign said, don't touch the thing. Right. And so this is the phenomenon that that Paul is talking about here. It's not that the commandment is bad. It's not that the commandment is dead and corrupt. The problem is that our flesh is dead and corrupt and our flesh desires to disobey God. So the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with our flesh. At this point, I need to explain what I mean by flesh. And and it's really important that we understand this in this passage and then following along, particularly in chapter 8. But in Pauline theology, so if you read um, the the letters of Paul in the New Testament, you'll see this concept of flesh um, come out a lot. He's not necessarily talking about skin. He's talking about this fallen nature of humanity. It's the word sarks which does mean flesh like we think of it. But Paul often uses it in sort of a figurative way. And I think it's helpful to think about it because when you're made new in conversion, you're made new spiritually. The day you get converted, you aren't automatically freed from all your old habits, right? There's some retraining of yourself that has to take happen. And that old self, that old nature that has died in terms of our relationship to God still exists in us and we have to put it to death. And so this flesh is this holdover of the old Adam. It's the old self. It's this sinful nature that remains in you. And, and prior to conversion, if, if, if you're an unbeliever, all that you have is this fleshliness. But then in conversion, when you're born again or regenerated in the way the Bible speaks of this, you're given spiritual life. And then there becomes, I, I, I don't want to say this because it can be misleading, but almost like you have split personalities. You have the, the you, this really you that's been made new by God. And then you have this old you that is dead and dying. And that is your flesh. Does that make sense? And so in this passage, it's vitally important that we understand that Paul makes a distinction between his self and his flesh. And we'll see that later. And so our flesh, that old Adam, that old person, craves sin like the old habit, right? It, it craves it. it. It craves that cigarette after they've quit. You know, my dad smoked for many years and I don't know if it's happened recently, but I remember years and years after he quit smoking, he would reach for his pocket on his shirt to grab a cigarette. 
we're talking about probably a decade after quit smoking. The habit was ingrained. And sometimes our struggle with sin feels like that. Like that we don't do that anymore. That's not who we are. But that craving and that desire is still there. That's your flesh, according to Paul. And so that moves us into the last section. And this is really the hardest part of this passage is what exactly is Paul talking about? And it's even it, it kind of goes through these earlier passages, but particularly in this last bit in verses 14 through 25. Paul is describing the experience of someone. The question is, whose experience is he describing? <laughs> is he speaking perfectly? Uh, personally, like an autobiographical sense? Or is he speaking hypothetically of some other sense? What's going on here? This is what we have a hard time understanding. So before we read it, I'm going to give you sort of the main sort of categories where the debate lies in interpreting what he's talking about. Um, so first category here is Paul in verses 14 through 25 is describing himself in the present time as a regenerate, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. He's talking about himself as he's pinning it down, saying, this is who I am, this is how I think, this is my experience right now, okay? Which I would argue is the most straightforward interpretation. That's what it seems like he's saying like, right on the page. The second category, main category, is that he's talking about himself or any other unregenerate Jew prior to conversion trying to be a righteous Pharisee, trying to obey the law of God without the power of the Spirit to actually do it. And so they, people who take this position would say that he is um, speaking hypothetically or he's using um, sort of the dramatic self-present tense. Okay, and so here are some of the main arguments for speaking of himself in the present time. In other words, Paul is speaking as a regenerate believer. First, it's written in the present tense. And he's saying, I do this, I do this, I don't do this, I want to do this, all in the present tense. It's not, I used to do this, or I used to desire this, but couldn't do this. But no, I presently want this. So it's written in the present tense, and he uses the pronoun I. Verse 22, he says that he delights in the law of God in his inner being. So the question is, can someone who is not born again delight in the law of God? And when we get in chapter 8, we see that they say that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're not able to do his law. In fact, this is a promise of the new covenant that God writes his law upon the hearts of his people and makes them willing to obey. So it seems to be, verse 22, seems to be something that is only true of believers. Verse 20, he says, It is no longer I who do it, speaking of sin when he disobeys, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see, this seems to be that category I told you about. It's not I who do it, but it's sin. It's this flesh. It is sin that dwells within me, not I. There's a new category of thinking about myself in light of his union with Christ and his salvation. And then finally, the, the same tension continues in the conclusion 
after giving thanks for salvation in Christ. Verse 25, he says, thanks be to God. Let's look at this together. Um, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So we see these parallels um, even after the conclusion, even after redemption in Christ is expressed here. So that makes it seem like he's talking about the regenerate believer, that he's speaking of himself in the present moment. What, is, what are some things that people who would take a view that he's speaking of an unregenerate person, what would they say? Verse 14, Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. You go, wait a second, Paul, you just said in chapter 6 that you were freed from sin, that, you, that you've been redeemed. So how can you say that you're sold under sin? Verse 18, it says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so you might say, well, what about God giving you the ability through the Holy Spirit, God giving you a new heart and new desires and new affections in order to obey him? And so those are just a couple of arguments that people would make. And they say he can't be speaking of himself as a born again believer because of these things that seem to be contradictory with what he had said earlier. Do you see the, the problem? Now, secularists and skeptics would just say, this is why you can't trust the Bible, because it's a contradictory bunch of nonsense. Which is not my position. <laughs> that is going into it with a presupposition that it's already, that I already believe that it's contradictory thinking nonsense, rather than me saying, maybe there's a way to understand this uh, rightly. There's actually a third view um, that's less common, but it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, for example, was a popularizer of this position, and that he's not talking about a regenerate person or an unregenerate person. And you're like, what other person is there? But he's basically talking about those who who are being drawn by the Spirit of God, being drawn to faith but aren't yet converted. And so there's a whole third category there. Um, cards on the table, I'm taking the first position. I'm taking the position that this is Paul speaking as a converted believer in Christ, talking about this struggle with indwelling, ongoing sin. This is the most common position throughout church history, particularly in the Reformed tradition. Um, a lot of your great heroes of your faith held this position. This is Augustine's second position. Um, his first position was that it was uh, prior to his conversion. Um, and so um, that's the position I'm going to be coming from, but I'm going to tell you, I'm not solid on that, okay? So I might be writing a second sermon, you know, a few years down the road. Um, it's difficult. I think there are compelling arguments on both sides. But like I said, even if we disagree on the timing of it, the main point is still pretty much the main point, and we're not that far off. It's just things that theologians and Bible scholars like to argue about over dinner, you know? Um, so if I'm taking that first position that Paul is speaking as a regenerate believer, what do I do with those contradictions? First, I think he, he is trying to clarify apparent contradictions by specifying that when he is speaking of himself as being bound to sin, he means particularly, particularly his flesh. 
I think he's trying to clean up in his language, particularly in like verse 18, um, the first half of that verse. He says, for I know nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. You see how he seems to clarify that? Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. There's a category that he's speaking of here. And also in verse 20, where he says, um, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It seems like he's trying to clarify um, the apparent contradictions. So hopefully I didn't just confuse all of you and just at least get you understanding of categories that we're thinking in uh, as we walk through this passage here. Um, so when we look through it, let's, let's start just walking through it verse by verse. Remember, we're answering the question, is um, law sin um, that we answered in 7 through 13? And then he keeps really going in that same thing. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. All right, I'm going to stop right there. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It's a lot of do's. Here's what he's saying. There's something I want to do. I want to be a certain way. I want to honor God. I want to obey his commandments. But here I go again doing the thing that I don't want to do. I'm not doing the thing that I, I want to do. I don't even understand myself. I say I want to be a Christian. I say I want to live righteously before God. But here I am again doing the things that I don't want to do. That's what he said. He says, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Man, that can be confusing. But think about what he's saying. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So he's saying, I didn't want this. So I'm agreeing with the law that it's good. So he's saying, even in my disobedience, even in me doing what I don't want to do, I'm proving that the law is good because I didn't want to do it. Okay, that's what he's saying. And then we go to verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So we have that category of flesh and the new man, the old Adam and the new Adam. It's not me, but it's that old Adam in me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, this is one of those quotes that I said, how can that be a believer? Remember, he's talking about in his flesh. He's talking about in his own strength. I want to obey God, but in my own strength, I don't have the ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. Right. You see that same category popping back up again. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Can you relate to that? This is one of the strong arguments for interpreting this passage as the experience of a believer, because this is the experience of every believer. Like, it's a law, Paul says, that whenever I want to do right, evil is close by, close at hand. Haven't you made those New Year's resolutions? You're going to turn over a new leaf. You're going to be a new person. Now, what do you know? Grandma makes chocolate cake on January 2nd. Evil lies close at hand. Now, that's a silly illustration. Some of us have said, I'm going to put this sin to death once and for all. You put all the things in place, accountability and all these things, and you, you, you make promises with God and you say, I'm going, to, I'm going to get this right. But evil is like right there in the room with you saying, huh, I bet you will. Paul saying this is his experience. He's found that to be a law. It's so common. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, this is another common experience. I read the Bible. I study the law of God and I delight in it. I think it's good. I think it's beautiful. And I, I want to obey it. And I want to see God glorified in my life. But I see in my body a different law that wants to go in the opposite direction. You see, I think this is particularly clear and particularly seen in sexual sin. And he said, talks about our members and our body in a specific way. There was a the Puritan used to say that the young man might be born again in his heart, but there rages within his loins an uncontrollable monkey. That there's a law in your flesh, in your body, that seems to be waging war against your spirit. And Paul's saying that's because there is. There is a war. There is a battle between the flesh and the spirit. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but my body seems to be going in the opposite direction. So we get to this point and you're like, man, if this is Christianity, it's pretty brutal. And he goes, that's what Paul says too. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? wretched man that I am. See, you were wretched before you were saved. And you, in and of yourself, are still wretched. You need to be saved. You're, you, and if you're a believer in Christ, you've been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. Your hope, your righteousness, your justification is always in Christ. It's always alien. It's always outside of you. So when you look at yourself, you see wretchedness. Stop looking at yourself. Look to Jesus. He's your substitute. He is your righteousness. 
that doesn't stop the moment you say your sinner's prayer and you're baptized. Jesus will always be your righteousness. He's always your substitute. He's always your Savior. And so looking to ourselves and saying, wretched man that I am, isn't inconsistent with Christianity. It isn't inconsistent with the Christian faith. We should always be amazed by grace that saved a wretch like me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is Jesus saves me from this body of death. And he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so he's moving into this setting our mind on the law of God. I serve the law of God with my mind and I'm putting my mind, my spirits to the work of serving the law of God. And in my body, I serve the law of sin. This can seem like a pretty hopeless passage that you're just going to live a life of complete surrender and defeat by sin. But thankfully, it doesn't stop with chapter 7. It moves into chapter 8. And the first verses we hear in chapter 8 is, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I just want to go ahead and give you a spoiler alert for the next sermon because I can't stop here. What Paul wants us to see at the end of chapter seven is that we are hopeless in our own self. Because we can't obey God's law. We can't be righteous before him. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with the sinful flesh. And so that's why Jesus came in the flesh. We're moving into Advent, to Christmas, when we, when we set our minds on the coming of Jesus in the flesh, in his incarnation. Why did he come in flesh? in order to condemn sin in the flesh, that which we can't do because our flesh is bound to sin, sold to sin. And we've not yet been glorified. Our bodies haven't been made new. We've not been completely sanctified yet. But Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned it in this flesh in order that we who now walk by the Spirit um, now fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So we'll, we'll wind down with this. There's this phrase um, that I couldn't really trace down the original author, the original person who said this, this, this quote. I, I first saw it attributed to Martin Luther, but it seems like it's one of those things that people say that Luther said, but he never actually said. There's a lot of those things out there. Um, but the, the, the saying goes like this. He says, the old Adam is drowned in baptism. 
but the punk is a darn good swimmer. <laughs> that is what chapter 7 is probably about. <laughs> chapter 6, we were baptized into Christ's death. We died with him. That old Adam is put to death. He was drowned in baptism, but he's still swimming, and he pops up every now and then. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, I told you that the Christian life is getting the, the order of the indicatives and imperatives. God declares things of us and then says, go be this. You're righteous. Go be righteous. The old Adam is dead. Put him to death. You see, this is consistent with all of the, the theology here. So the old Adam is drowned in baptism, but the punk is a darn good swimmer. And so our application, if you will, to this passage is one, do not be discouraged when you lose a battle with sin, because remember, it's no longer you who do it, but sin. It dwells within you. The old Adam is dead, drowned in baptism. That's not you. Christ has defeated it. Look to Christ. So don't be discouraged when you lose a battle with sin. Rather, get up and keep fighting. Get up and keep fighting. Confess your sin. You know, we do this. We, we fight this battle every time we, we go through this liturgy that we do, right? Because we, we confess our sin. That's how we put it to death. We don't hide the fact that we continue to sin when we gather to worship. We, we bring it out to the public and we say, we confess our sins to God. That's how you deal with a, a failure in the battle with sin, as you confess it. And in that confession, you put it to death. And you keep going. Don't allow one failure, one stumbling block to throw you completely off course in following Christ. Don't allow every little trip and stumble to send you back to zero. Just get up, confess your sin, and keep walking. Keep following Christ. And the next thing is to live by the Spirit. And it's really set up in chapter 8. Um, of what that looks like. And so I'm just going to leave that as a cliffhanger and you can come back after the new year and we'll get in Romans chapter 8. But we live by the Spirit of God, not by the flesh. Here's the best way to think about that, living by the Spirit. It's living dependent upon God. With complete dependency upon God. That I need God to obey I need God to live righteously. I need God to do the right thing. I need God to do what I desire to do because I'm hopeless in and of myself. How do we demonstrate this? How do we practice this dependency upon God? It's simple, but not often easy, but it is simple. Prayer in the Word of God, that we go before the Lord. Prayer is this uh, acknowledgement of our dependency upon God. We need you, Lord, when we go to him in prayer. And the word of God is described as a sword. It's a battle weapon. So if we're trying to put to death sin, we should use the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. You know, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but you may have memorized uh, this verse in the Bible. It says um, to, to uh, hide God's word in your heart that I might not sin against you. There's this connection with hiding God's word in our heart that prevents us from sinning against God because it's the sword of the Spirit. So we 
live by the Spirit by acknowledging our dependency upon God through prayer and the Word of God. And finally, third application here is to keep fighting the good fight. God is faithful and He will deliver you. Who will deliver you from this body of death? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Keep fighting. He will deliver you. He is faithful. The mercies of our Lord endure forever and day. Keep fighting. So, this was where we'll stop for the semester. It's been said that, that as long as you're a Christian, you never fully leave Romans chapter 7. You, you always will do battle with this flesh. You think about the most holy, most sanctified person you know, and you ask them, they still have this same battle. They keep turning on light bulbs, and they keep seeing more and more dirt, right? So keep fighting. Don't be discouraged. God is faithful, and he will deliver you. So let's pray and ask God to apply this word to our heart and that we would be encouraged. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we do acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our inability in our flesh to do what is right before you. And we do acknowledge that thanks to your grace, you have enlightened us and made us uh, see the beauty of holiness, the beauty of righteousness, and the path of peace that we desire. But we confess that often in our bodies and in our flesh that we have competing desires that, that, that drown those out at times. And Lord, this is idolatrous at heart. So we confess this to you, Lord, and we seek to put it to death. We ask that you increase our affections for Christ through his word, that you give increase our appetite for the word. Um, and Lord, that you would give us a sweetness of fellowship and prayer. Um, and God, I pray that meditation on this truth um, would not be a discouragement to your people, but that it would be an encouragement to press on, an encouragement to humility, to not think of ourselves more highly than we should, but to give all glory to Christ and to view him as our righteousness and as our only hope and that we would glorify him and love him even more when we think about this truth that we've talked about tonight. And God, I pray um, that you would increase in all of us a longing for that day when this battle and this war within um, would be over, that we would be at peace, that we would be fully redeemed, fully glorified and made new, that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we were created to and as we long to be. And as we long for that end, help us to labor in that direction, that you would be glorified in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.